Hey, Darren D. Lake here. You've spoken and we are listening. We've gotten a bunch of requests from people asking, is this available to watch as a video? And can I read this? We believe in the holistic learning experience of watching, reading, and listening to things to fully grasp the whole concept. And we're proud to say that this episode and all future episodes are available as standalone YouTube videos and written blogs. Obviously, we want you to keep listening to this podcast, but if you want it in another format, just go to the show notes in your podcast player for the link to watch and read it, or just Google or YouTube search the title and you should find it. Last, we will be slowly updating our back catalog of older episodes to have video and written versions for you. So stay tuned. Let's get into the show. Put paste and do like Cree creates. Back in the 80s, Mike Trees was a very tense runner with a tight neck and shoulders. He also had an overstride that cost his running efficiency dearly. Yes, he was quite fast, but imagine how fast he might have been if he knew about good running form back then. In the 80s, it was mostly thought good running form was a natural talent, not a skill to be worked at and acquired. If you compare Mike's run form from 35 years ago to now, it's a world of difference. In this podcast, we'll tell you the seven best tips to get good running form. Find out more and run your fastest on this episode of Trees and D-Lake. Don't master a lot, don't master a little, just stay in the middle. Don't master all, don't master none, just be a master of some. What is up? Welcome to Trees and D-Lake, a podcast series by Mike Trees and yours truly, Darren D-Lake Creates. In this series, our goal is to educate and entertain smart and committed runners. A bit more on that from Mike Trees. And the aim of this podcast is to give, in a light-hearted, amusing and entertaining way, hints and tips to help you all run better and enjoy your sporting life more. So let's see how we can go with that. Mike's being pretty modest. He has over 50 years of running and doing triathlons under his belt. And if you're wondering about me, I've been in the endurance sport game for about 25 years now, done a sub three hour marathon and completed an Ironman triathlon in 10 hours. We appreciate all the help and support that we can get. So if you can, please share out this episode to someone that you know that would like this. Oh, quick language warning. In some rare instances, we might use some bad words. So apologies in advance for that. This year, I turned 40 years old, and despite my many injuries along the way, I've had to work hard on the basics of running for the last four years, partly because my injuries necessitate that I'm efficient to stay injury-free, but more recently because the light-flowing form I now have makes running a relaxing, enjoyable, and stress-free experience. As we don't like to tease anything on this podcast, whenever we have a list-type format, we'll just give you the seven things and not hold them from you but make sure to listen on to the rest of the episode to find out more details about each one. All right, the seven tips for good running form. One, posture. Two, foot plant. Three, stride length. Four, arm swing. Five, cadence. Six, core. And seven, perfection. And that doesn't mean running perfectly, that means striving for perfection. So here's what to expect in this episode. We'll start off with a quick warm up to see where we're at in our current training. And then we move into the core of the episode, the seven tips to good running form. And we'll end it with our episode question, who has the best running form, Mo Farah or Elliot Kachogi? Enough from me, let's get into the conversation. All right, it's another episode, and that means that I want to know how you're doing, Mike. What's uh, what's going on in the world of of Mike Tree's Run Dot Energy training this week? 
always lots going on. Uh, lots of coaching with athletes. So the the Tommy and my uh, our coaching is super taking off. Uh, I mean, it's we just can't cope anymore. Uh, so that's great. Uh, so maybe I'm working a little bit too hard on Instagram uh, <laughs> and getting the message out. But apart from that. I'm training really hard. So it's, it's full on days at the moment. I literally, I get up four in the morning, I'm out training and some days, you know, I'm, I'm doing 20, 20 hours plus a week. So, uh, you know, some days I'm out there, you know, five hour days training. Then I get back. Uh, I've got to look after my daughter a little bit. Mustn't forget. I've got a family. <laughs> I sometimes forget that while I'm out training. I think, Oh shit, I've got to get home. <laughs> my daughter's locked out. Uh, <laughs> then, then I've got to get, you know, the training stuff done, the rehab, the food, so important to eat. Uh, but yeah, I love it. it it's a full time job just doing what I do. Uh, but it doesn't feel like a job. You know what? If I wasn't getting paid for doing this, I'd be doing it anyway. <laughs> Darren. What are you doing recently? This week has been interesting. Uh, I'm not coaching anyone at the moment. I'm actually going to start coaching a cyclist to his best. He's going to do a 300-watt FTP test, which uh, we won't go into details of if you're not a cyclist. <laughs> but um, really, really like the cycling side of things. But I had an epiphany, I think, last night. Literally, I was trying to do a whole bunch of work, and it's all related around, you know, endurance sports and podcast stuff. And, you know, I am doing what I really like doing on what I love doing at times. And I'm looking at my data, and I'm looking at, like, I'm, I'm, what is it? Garmin, Garmin showing my VO2 max, Strava shows my stress training score, and all that. And I'm looking at it all, and the last six weeks, it has dropped significantly. I think it's dropped. Woo, I'm going on like 18% in both of them. And I'm also noticing that my pace in some of my faster speed work is not where it should be if I want to get my best time in 5K, as I was saying uh, in, the la in, in a previous episode. And I just went, all right, my priorities are all over the map right now. You know what? I'm just going to run my best 5K. It's not going to be my fastest. So I'm not going to extend now another 10 weeks. Like I was saying, I think I'm going to be on a 24-week you know, period it's just getting too much. It's also, um, I'm going to get into the warmer months soon. So I don't want to be trying to do a 5k in December here, which in Sydney, Australia is the winter, uh, is the summer, the middle of summer. It's just like, like I can't, there's just too much crap happening. You know what? I'm going to take my fitness, run a 5k, get it under my belt, which is cool because it's the consistency and it's the year on year. Yeah. You don't have to P PR or PB as they say here year on year, but I think getting the training in, getting some resemblance of different cycles and different type of training. And I'm going to get some speed work in over the next few weeks. Uh, I like to do an annual half marathon, which is more of a DIY virtual as they call it. And again, it's going to get too hot for that. So I'm just basically slamming all my races <laughs> in the span of the next three weeks and just enjoy it and, and just go, all right, I'm most likely not going to get my best time, but get under my belt, reset. I like to do a four week deload um, at the end of, at the end of calendar years. Um, so I detrain. And then get back into it in about late November and do a, a really long kind of aerobic base block and then see what happens when I turn 40 at my 5K. So that, that, was, that was the epiphany I had last night. And uh, I'm, I'm sticking to it. I woke up this morning and I said, yep, I like that. That feels good. So, so my, my advice that a lot, I've done well with a lot of runners that feel they're going nowhere is just have four weeks and just run a 5K every week. You're probably fine. You're fastest on the third week. Don't change your training. Just make sure that if you do it on the Saturday, Thursday, Friday, super easy days, you know, like a, a 30 minute jog on Friday, you know, maybe up to 45 minutes on, uh, jogging on Thursday, 
a little bit of a session on Wednesday. Uh, and then each Saturday, they just go in, no expectations, same course, same place. Uh, and the first one's crap, second one's a bit quicker, the third one, wow, that's pretty good. The fourth one, they think they're going to smash it out of the park and it gets slower again. Uh, so <laughs> I always give them four so they think, yeah, the third one's where I'm at. And it is what it is. You then say, well, it's not as good as I wanted, but, you know, I've done four, four cracks at it, uh, and that's where I'm at at the moment. But uh, you might not have the time, but it's just a bit of advice for anyone out there listening that's uh, in the same boat that's thinking, oh, yeah, I recognise what Dan's going through. Yeah, I just then say, you know, four weeks, 5K each week. It's not going to do any damage. And the third one's probably going to be your fastest. I, You know what? I'll take that on board. And I, I truly believe in uh, you have to get better at racing. So you can get yes. fit. You can get fit. You've got to get race fit. You need to get race fit. And that's mentally because yeah. racing is a whole other thing. And getting used to coping with that, like that lactate and that pain and that suffering, like you can be the same fitness and it's like taking tests. You, you can get better at testing and not actually know more knowledge. You just get better mm. at how the test is structured, um, which also in schooling, it's also like, well, did you actually learn this, the matter, the subject matter, <laughs> if you just got better at actually testing? But it's a thing, you know, you need to get better at racing. And I'm big on um, doing one mile time trials, 3K time trials, getting ready for the 5K. I've never done three, four weeks worth of 5Ks one week after another. So I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. I'm doing it. Good, good. <laughs> old school, I mean, old school coaches, we used to say, you've got to race fit, you've got to get race fit. Uh, yeah. And we'd use races to get fit. Uh, and they're tuning races and just, we'd go in, we'd, we'd crack them out just as hard as they were serious race, not racing any less, but it just takes a little bit of time for the body to get used to it. And by the third one, I think you'll be surprised at how fast you go. Warm up complete. All right. So, you know, I just blabbered on about, you know, me and my woes on running and all that. Um, a big thing, though, that I I love and I'm, I've gotten borderline obsessed with is running form. And, you know, as you heard at the top of this episode, at the beginning of the episode, this episode is all about running form. And we're going to give you seven tips. Mike has seven. There's probably hundreds of them. But since Mike Trees is the best coach in the world, these seven are the best seven in the world. Uh, Mike, let's let's jump into it. What is the difference between ru good running form and good running economy? Ah, uh, well, that's a hard one. It's uh, that's probably a podcast in itself. <laughs> but uh, I would say that running economy and efficiency. So, running like Darren runs, you, you are the most efficient person in the world running how you run. So, if I look at your form and video it and copy it. I can copy it because I'm pretty good at copying people's running style and run exactly how you run, but I won't be as efficient as you. So I'll have the same running form, but because I'm not used to running that, my muscles won't be firing as efficiently. They're not used to working that way. So I won't be working as effective as, as you. So although I've got the same running form, I'm not running as efficiently because my body's not working as efficiently as yours is. So you've got used to running the way you, you run. So that's the efficiency. So what happens is if we change your running form, you become less efficient in the short term because you're not used to that new form. So you probably get slower. So we have to decide if we're going to change someone's form, whether it's a useful change or not useful change. So it goes back to the old adage, if it's not broken, don't change it. But there are a few biomechanical sort of no-nos that we, we need to look at 
to make sure you're not going to get injured uh, and you're not doing something really, really bad that, that could harm you in the future. Like, you know, uh, an analogy, you're not putting your head in a hot oven, you know, because it's going to burn you. You're not doing something that we shouldn't be doing. But in, in general, I don't like to touch people's running form. If they're happy with the way they're running and they're not getting injured, then there's no reason to change. I look at running form because people come to me and say, no, I want to change my form. I, I, I want to change a little bit to four foot running and I'll say why or or I'm getting injured a lot. Can you see, is there any anything that might be causing the injuries when I'm running? And I'll have a look and see if I can see anything in that way. Uh, and that's why I like to look at the form and, and to make it a little bit more efficient. So I learned really about running form from swimming. I started swimming at 27. I'd never thought about form as a runner. I just ran as a kid. Uh, and through my 20s, I just ran. But when I learned to swim, everyone was talking about swim drills, this, that, and the other. I was thinking, well, hang on. Why do we do all these in swimming but not in running? Why do we look at the way we swim so much but we don't look at the way we run? Uh, and then it became more of a science. Uh, and I've studied it over the years, the running form. So I've got seven tips. There are lots of other tips, but I think these seven tips are quite big ones to look at. So... We might as well just jump into them, eh? Great. Yeah, let's jump into it. So number one is posture. Tell me more about that. So you need to stand up straight. Uh, and I hate seeing slouched runners looking down. So your shoulders are slouched forward, your head's down, you're looking at the ground. You're going to run into the ground. You, you can't get the chest open to breathe. Uh, I, I like a good uh, stand up straight standing up almost like you a christmas decoration imagine you've got a a hook on your head and it's not hanging you so much but it's pulling you up right so you're just standing up straight uh and straight and tall shoulders back a little bit head looking straight ahead and then you relax so what before you start running i mean i naturally just when i talk i actually start doing these things myself when i'm talking <laughs> but before you run you should stand and get your posture correct so stand with the weight probably on the balls of the feet, the knees slightly bent, the shoulders back, the head looking straight ahead, and make sure the, the shoulders are level and your body is level and straight. And then you just gradually just lean forward a little bit till gravity takes over, and boom, you're running, and that's it. Nothing more technical than that. Uh, and so posture is, is a good way to start. Get the posture right before you run. Uh, because it's too late. Once you start running and you're slouched and bending down, you're already off to a bad foot. Number two, foot plant. Explain that. So I've changed a little bit here. I used to say land forefoot. Uh, and this is the way to go, the most efficient way. And, and we, we then went back to studies of... I won't say the example of the caveman with the dinosaurs because you hit me too hard last time with that one. But I do like cavemen with dinosaurs. It's sort of quite cute. But anyway, we go back to caveman who had no shoes. He ran barefoot uh, and science suggests that he ran forefoot. And I would tend to agree because if he'd landed on his heels, the shock would have gone through to his knees, his hips and joints, and he wouldn't be running very much. So you take your shoes and socks off and run. And, and I'll just tell this to anyone. If you haven't tried this, take your shoes and socks off and go for a run. How do you run? I'll guarantee you will land forefoot because if you land on the heel, the shock is so much it just vibrates right through your body, it hurts. So the body knows it's going to hurt, stops it doing it. When we put shoes on, 
The brain's pretty clever. It realizes that shoes can absorb the shock, and so it lets you land on the heel, knowing that it won't be that painful because uh, the shoe's absorbing the shock. So I used to say forefoot running was the way to land. But I'm guided more. I mean, my uh, yeah, I hate to say yeah, I hate to say sort of hero sort of thing, but a guy I really respect in in the scientific world is. Uh, Dr. Dan Lieberman. Uh, a lot of people might have heard of him if you've done a bit of research. He's Harvard University, uh, human movement studies. Uh, and he's sort of changing his views a little bit from forefoot running to uh, midfoot running or flat foot running. Uh, and uh, what, what we're saying now is really it's the chicken and the egg. It's, you want to land with a slightly bent knee and the foot behind the knee. How your foot lands on the ground is secondary to that. So, so long as your foot is coming down behind the knee when you land, the knee slightly bent, it means you absorb the shock through the muscular system. When you absorb the shock through the muscular system, it, it's less damage and less stress on the body. If you land with the foot in front of the knee, the leg is locked and the, the, the shock gets absorbed through the skeletal system. So the shock goes to the ankle, the knee, the hips, the lower back. Uh, and I always sort of flippantly say, you know, when I see people running like that, oh, there's a hip operation waiting to happen. <laughs> so it, it, it's just a matter of time. People say, you can't run that long, you wear out. Well, I've always run efficiently with my feet behind my knee, landing recently, you know, mostly forefoot, absorbing the muscle, the, the, uh, the shock through the muscles. If I pull a muscle, it's living tissue. It'll repair. I'll back and running again. But if I damage the knee or the hip, or something, it's, it's a long time injury. So I would say that the, the key thing is foot plant. Make sure your foot lands behind the knee. And another reason for that is not just the injury point, but if you put your foot in front of your knee, it's ahead of your center of gravity. So the, the foot becomes a braking force. You then have to get your center of gravity back over the foot, back in front of the foot before you can accelerate. So anyone who overstrides and lands with their foot in front of the knee is braking, accelerating, braking, accelerating. So it's a very inefficient way to run. Uh, and then that brings me finally to, on this subject, a lot of people say, oh, we see lots of fast runners heel striking. Yes, you do see fast runners heel striking. This is why I don't say you should heel strike or midfoot strike as opposed to, I mean, sorry. This is why I don't say heel striking is bad and forefoot running is good. You see some people heel striking, but what the fast runners and all have in common is they land behind their knees so that they're constantly accelerating. They're not having this braking force. So yes, you do see people landing on the heels. And I'm not going to say that heel striking is specifically bad. I now think my view is that flat foot running is possibly the most efficient way of running for longer distances. Uh, but that's up for argument. But I now say land with your foot behind the knee. I understood it before, but it took me many, many videos to understand it. But you explain it in the audio format because, you know, most people that consume this, you know, hopefully there'll be a video also. And it's hard to really visualize a lot of these mm -hmm. things. Um, so we're, we're probably a bit ambitious on, you know, talking okay. about... <laughs> Talking about running form on a podcast, but you know what? It's it's great because hopefully you're running or or cycling and well, listening it, to if this. If it makes people study it a little bit more and Google it and look at some YouTube videos, at least it's it's done its purpose. It's got people thinking. You you did touch on um, overstriding, so that leads us to number three, which is stride length. Uh, mm. If you want to talk talk yeah. a bit more about that, I know you talked about that. Yeah. No, no, this is perfect. Leads into this, so I get a lot of people say. Add break. 
Right now is the part where I go, hey, if you're feeling this, make sure you like, subscribe, rate this, share it out with your friends about how amazing this is, right? All right, while you should go out and do that anyway, how about I actually give you something that will help you? Is the running, health, fitness, and endurance sport internet too much sometimes? Too much conflicting content on how to train right? Or you just don't have the time to read and watch the latest trends on how to, I don't know, carb cycle for your next marathon. Don't worry, I'll take care of all that for you by showing you how to train, race, and live 1% better consistently. To do this, just sign up for my free D-Lake Runs newsletter. I figure out this whole 1% better thing so you don't have to by scouring the endurance sports internet's deepest and darkest corners. Go to D-Lake Creates forward slash news, spell the normal way, N-E-W-S, to be inspired and motivated on the regular. And back to the show. No, no, this is perfect leads into this. So I get a lot of people say, oh, well, if I can't put my foot in front of my knee, how do I lengthen my stride? Well, they're getting it wrong. You don't lengthen your stride by sticking your leg out in front of you because that's a break. You lengthen your stride by putting more force into the push-off behind you. So it's how much force you can apply to the push-off. So force over time is giving us the watts, the power. And so if we can just put more force into each step as we push off, we'll go a little bit further. So if I push off a little bit harder, I might get an extra two centimeters to my stride length. You look at all these top runners, they all come down with a their their knee sort of bent and it's landing short in front of them and they're pushing off behind everything comes from behind them that acceleration that drive and it's not an overly extended leg stride in front this is what people get wrong and beginners you see them and, and runners world was shocking for this in the the 90s that you had the picture a pretty girl on the cover with her foot right out in front <laughs> just about to land on the heel yeah. uh, big arms forward and back uh, and, and smiling and massively overstriding and doing every possible mistake in the book. But the stride length comes from the power generated, the force of the push off. So to get a longer stride length, I would argue you need to be doing plyometric training. You need to be strength and conditioning training or naturally you need to be running hills and just pushing off harder behind you and not extending in front. So stride length comes from behind, not from in front, from the push off. Funny enough, when I first got into, when I first started running track, you know, I had a lot of natural 200, 400 speed. So we, we would, I remember we did this 200 workout. It was 16, 200. We ran a 400 all out and then we did 12, 12, 200s and, um, Five minutes rest is one of my favorite workouts. So we raced. It was all the mid-distance guys raced. We did a 400 race. And then five minutes later, you know, full recovery, ATP regenerate, regenerates. And then it's, uh, it was 200s, 12 by 200. And I remember towards the end, my coach was saying, stop overstriding at the end of the set, the session. He's like, start thinking of smaller steps. And I was like, that makes no sense. And then he's like, try it. And within two, by it was towards the end. And as I fatigued, and I, he goes smaller steps and push for, and go forward. Yeah. Think about going forward. Don't think about stretching. And I was like, holy shit! Like I and that that blew my mind after that. And I, I, I that was very early on in my endurance sport days. And I started running more endurance sports, and I got into uh, higher cadences and. I remember hearing all about that, that the shorter stride length actually does help you and the, you know, the higher, higher cadence does help you. So 
experiencing that before I read anything and going like, and he's like, you will run faster. You'll run faster. I promise you. And I, 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 so not even, you know, I didn't care about injury. I was young enough. I wasn't running enough kilometers to injure myself. Um, I just actually went faster as I got tired and more fatigued. So, um, so yeah, more power to you on that. You, you, you got that. All right. Number four, arm swing. A lot of people a lot of people don't believe in the arms. You know, they're like, oh, my arms, my arms won't help me go, you know, go fast. I need the strong, the, the big legs. Okay. So with the arm swing, uh, quite an interesting one. Go out for a run uh, and move your arms really slowly and try and move your legs really quickly. You can't do it. Move your arms really fast uh, and you'll find that the legs go really fast as well. So the legs are, are led by the arms. So if you do a short, fast arm swing, it'll help you to get a short, fast cadence. So if someone wants to pick the cadence up, just shorten the arm swing and make it faster and the ar- legs will go faster. If you want a longer stride, do a longer arm swing uh, and the, le- the stride length will, will increase. So the arms are super important for balancing the legs and for helping us run. Uh, and it, they, they lead the legs. The arms are leading the legs. And, and I like to say you want to have your elbows at about 90 degrees. So you do see different examples. But if you keep the elbows at 90 degrees or even a little bit more, 100, 110, it's a shorter, easier movement. That's much easier. You see a lot of Kenyans running like this uh, because you can move the legs higher and get a higher cadence. If you drop and open the arms, so it's a much more open angle, and we used to say this, brush your hips as you're running, then you're going to have a bigger, longer, slower stride length. So the arms are important. And the other thing with the arms I'd say that's important is try not to cross the center line. You do see some elites crossing the center line, but generally when you see beginners who have a weaker core and uh, swinging their arms, let's say the center line, if you imagine your, your two eyes, you've got the nose, the middle of your mouth, the middle of your chest, the belly button, that's the center line of your body. And if you cross that, so your right arm comes across to your left shoulder, basically what happens is the right arm swings over to the left shoulder, then your opposite leg comes over to the right to balance. So if something goes to the right, Newton's third law, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So your right arm goes off to the left side of the body, your left leg will probably swing over to the right side of the body. So instead of running in a straight line, you're running from side to side and becoming more efficient. So when you swing the arms, try not to cross the center line as you're running. This helps you keep your legs going in a, in a straight angle. All right, number five, cadence. We spoke on that a bit with the stride length. Give me, give me more, uh, more in depth on the cadence. Okay, so I've I've been. Uh, tack sounds a bit harsh, but a lot of tall people coming to say, "Oh, I can't get a cadence of 180. Uh, I can't get this." Well, what what 180 came from? Again, it came from Dan Lieberman <laughs> at Harvard University. That he see, he did a lot of research and found that. There's something called elastic recoil, and it's the natural spring in in the legs and the muscles. Uh, and it's like an elastic band. So when you hit the ground, you load up this spring in your lower leg muscles, the, the tendons and the ligaments, and boom, when you release the foot, it springs off. And this natural recoil, he was suggesting, tends to be most efficient at about three steps per second. Well, three steps per second naturally translates to 180 steps per minute. 
uh, and then so we had this magical number of 180. Uh, and then you find out that uh, people like Kipchoge ran, I think, 185 or even 190 for the marathon. Mo Farrow is running around about 190 steps per second. Uh, and then you look at the uh, Japanese marathon runners, and they're running over 200 steps per second, per, not second, per minute. So their cadence is way higher, but that's obviously because they're very short. So we find that, yeah, the shorter you are, your, your stride length is going to be shorter, so the quicker your cadence needs to be. But it does seem to be that, a cadence of around about 170 to 180 is the optimal cadence to be, be aiming for. And obviously, taller people, it's harder to get it up there. But if the cadence is too slow, you're, you're working less efficiently. So I used to say aim for 180 steps per second. Now I'm being a bit more lenient and saying don't get hooked up on the number, but always aim to keep it high. Try not to get slower because the slower it gets, the more contact time you have with the ground. And if your foot is on the ground, you're not going forward. The only time you're going forward is when your foot's in the air. So we're trying to limit our contact time with the ground. So hit the ground, boom, spring off. Hit the ground, come off. Because if you hit the ground, boom, come off, boom, that's slowing you down. The longer you are, the foot is an anchor when it's on the ground. So you want to get the foot spring and off. Uh, and, and around about 170 to 180 is a good target. So let's not get too wound up about an exact figure, but always aim for a little bit higher cadence uh, and, and somewhere between 170 and 180 is a good cadence to aim for. A note on cadence, if you struggle with uh, maintaining uh, a higher cadence is slowly go, uh, you know, increase the cadence. So, you know, if you naturally run at 160 and you're trying to get to, let's say 180 is, is what you want to do. I would say to slow, you know, maybe go to 163 or 164 um, for one week. Uh, and the best way to do that there, you, you could find a DJ mix. That's the right BPM. That's probably not the most easy. It's not the easiest thing to do for tech, not people that are not tech savvy, but there are a lot of websites that tell you what the BPMs of songs are. So you can make a Spotify list of that. Um, and there also are just metronome apps and it's quite boring, but, um, you know, you're listening to something go, cat, 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 cat. And then you could speed that up and start playing around and, you know, like, you know, hopefully slowly getting up the cadence. You don't want to drastically change it too quickly because you might get injured. What are you going to say? Yes. Uh, the, the key thing with this, <laughs> and again, people just, they ask questions without thinking rationally in my view or logically. So if you keep your stride length the same and you increase your cadence, you're running faster. Now, if you're running faster, the heart has to work harder. <laughs> if the heart works harder, you're going to get tired. So everyone says, oh, I increase my cadence. I just get tired too quickly. Well, yeah, that's common sense because you haven't shortened your stride. Yeah. So think rationally. If you increase your cadence to keep the balance the same, you must shorten the stride length. Otherwise, you'll be working harder and going quicker. And that's not the point. The point is to be more efficient. So Let's shorten the stride length to increase the cadence. And then how can we do that? We can swing the arms quicker and you, you will, your legs will go quicker. You've just got to keep chopping it short at the front and not pushing off as hard at the back. So uh, it, it's a matter of trial and error. You've got to get out there and play around with it. But if you increase your cadence, you must shorten the stride to keep it all in balance. Speaking of arms... Uh, another part of the system, uh, the, the body, you know, the skeleton, mm -hmm. the skeletal system, the, the whole body system is core. And that leads us to number six. So how important is the core in running form? Well, I, I like to, I, I like my analogies and my stories, you know, imagine a, uh, a seesaw. 
uh, and it's pivoting on that piece of wood and it going either side. So the one end of the seesaw is the upper body and the upper arms, the lower, the other side of the seesaw is the legs. So the upper body in the helps drive the, the, the legs, the arms swinging drive the legs. Now imagine if that bit in the middle or the wood there, it is really weak. The seesaw is not really going <laughs> to, seesaw is going to go, mm, it's going to flop on either side. And you get a lot of runners that don't have a strong core, so they, they can't stand up straight. Their upper body can't drive and pivot uh, around their, their midriff because it's just not strong enough. So you see them sort of slouching and rolling and rocking and rolling from side to side. Uh, we need to see that spine. This, it's okay to have this rotational side-to-side movement of the spine so that it helps give you leg extension, but we don't want you wobbling left to right and uh, and side to side, uh, sort of left to right, as opposed to uh, a straight line rotating is good, but a pretty much wobbly uh, and uniform uh, wobble, as I call it, and scientifically, it is not going to power you forward. So a strong core is really important to getting the form good. Uh, it, it doesn't take much, five minutes, you know, three times a week, and you'll, you'll get a pretty strong core. If you do strength conditioning and leg weights, uh, you'll develop the core better than actually doing plank work. So you kill two stones with one bird. So people that think, you know, weights are, are not useful, they are. You can, you can get your core pretty strong from doing strength work and gym work as opposed to actually having to do the, the core plank itself. Yeah, you use the core in a lot of things. And if you can activate your core doing, you know, squats and lunges and deadlifts and all those types of things, pull-ups, push-ups, uh, you, you then can, you, you're activating the core, you're strengthening the core in other ways. You don't have to do the, the front planks and the side planks while they are good. But that, that leads us to number seven, which is a beautiful sum up. Uh, and and I'll, I'll let you sum it up in your own words of, uh, of perfection and, and champions. So, yeah, so we're all not going to become world champions. Uh, that's you know, pretty fair to say. But you can still be a little bit better than you are now. So if you're happy with the way you run and what you're doing and don't want to change anything, well, don't change because you're happy. That the point is that most people listening are listening because they want change. They want to run a little bit faster for a little bit less effort and enjoy the running a little bit more. So, yeah. So I say those people, yeah, let's just keep working on the efficiencies, how we're landing, checking, getting the form, aiming for perfection. We might not get there, but if you aim for 100%, you might hit 80%. But if you're happy with 70%, you're probably only going to hit 60 or 50%. Uh, and so always keep aiming for something a little bit higher. But the last thing is don't get stressed out about it. Remember, it's a hobby. Hobbies are to be enjoyed. So enjoy the process uh, and accept you might not ever get to perfection, but just so long as you're learning little things and learning about yourself and enjoying the journey, that's the most important thing. So my last tip really is just keep aiming for perfection, but have fun. Aim to enjoy what you're doing at the same time. Love it. Love it. We'll, we'll sum it up so that we can dumb it down for anyone that's, uh, that's zoned out over the last you know 30 minutes or so. We've got the seven tips. Number one is posture. Number two is foot plant. Number three is stride length. Number four is arm swing. Number five is cadence. Number six is core. And number seven is aim for perfection. You know, get 90, 100%, 100%, right? And you know you'll land at about 80% and have fun, right? Right? And have fun. And have yeah. fun. The main set finished. Let's move into the cool down. So we always end it with the really fun cool down segment. We're doing our static stretches. We're doing our, our striders right now. And this is a question. And this is a question for everyone to keep it two ways. So please at us, message us. It's at run.nrg, the letters, 
Mike Trees on Instagram, and I am at Delate Creates on Instagram. So message us the answer to this question. And it's an open-ended question. There's no right or wrong answer. This is a really fun one, and it's all based around run form. So here it is. Drum roll. Do, 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 do. Who has the better run form? Mo Farrow or Kipchoge? All right. That's Eliab Kipchoge. They... Is he yeah, the world record he, holder still? Yeah, world record holder and the first sub two-hour marathon yes, runner. And yes. uh, Mo Farah has the one-hour world record and uh, four Olympic golds. Yes, and the reason why I picked them, so a bit of a back, is uh, they're probably the two most well-known marathoners right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, runners, runners right now. And Mo Farah, because he ran the 5K all the way up to, you know, he did very well in the 5K, 10K, and he also, he's done pretty well in the, the marathon. Um, and obviously Kipchoge is now a household name over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, there are great, beautiful runners over the past hundred years. I'm not discounting them. You might be an amazing runner. You might know someone that's an amazing runner in your town, but I'm sure that the majority of our listeners <laughs> don't actually know who they are. So this is not discounting anyone else. Who, who would you pick as the, the best running form? Well, I, uh, I'm going to sit on the fence because I, I touched on this actually in the podcast. So they are both the most efficient runners at running the way they run. So all runners have a few idiosyncrasies. Uh, and Paula Radcliffe nodded her head when she ran. She was a famous marathon runner, had the world record for a long time. And people said she would run faster without doing that. But she'd come so efficient and that was part of her running that what happens is over the years we we pick up a running form and we become very efficient at that way of running and so they both have very very good running forms a high cadence this midfoot forefoot landing technique basically adhering to all the principles i've actually just described in in this podcast they they stand up their posture is good their foot plant is good they they don't overstride their their stride length is generated from the past from the the push off their cadence is fast, their arm swing is good, uh, they're relaxed, there's no tension, it's a relaxed running form, way of running. So they both have an excellent form, but when you look at them side by side, it's a different, slightly different kind of form, and they both become very efficient at the way they they run that, that form, although technically when you analyse it, it sounds the same, when you look at them, it looks very different. So if Kipchoge tried to run like Mo Farrow, he'd go slower because he's not as efficient at that way. So uh, I've got to sit the form and say, yeah, neither has got a better form than the other, but they both become very efficient at the way they run. Uh, and that's the key thing. And they've done it for many, many years, and they've got a super big engine, which is probably the biggest factor. Their genetics, they've got to thank their parents more than anything for the fact that they're world record breakers and, and the hard work that they put in. Uh, and uh, consistency over many years is the other, other big thing that they've got. So, but sorry, I'm sitting on the fence in this one. All right. Th- it wasn't meant to be a trick question. I know we've done a couple of these in the past, and I, I thought it was a clear cut, uh, you know, either or. But Mike, Mike brought a, a, a great point. You, you, you put a, a good point out there. Um, and as a coach, that's what you would say. I'm going to approach it more of a, you know what, it's my opinion. And Elliot Kipchoge, um, I'm not no slight to Mo Farah. Mo Farah, I think. He definitely shines in the 5K, 10K. I know the marathon was new for him over the past few years. And Kipchoge, he started out at the 5K as a lot of these elite but marathoners He started out 1500, 1500. Yeah, sorry, 1500. Yeah, as a lot of the elite, they don't start off as marathoners. At, at, you know, a lot of them don't um, at 15 years old. They, and funny enough, and you, you probably know more about this than me, 
they they actually they don't um a lot of their coaches won't allow them to run the marathon until they they like late twenties um for a lot of reasons. So I still find it I find it funny and ironic that you know someone just started running six months into running they want to jump into the marathon. Whereas a lot of these pros they'll spend fifteen years running five k. They'll still do their long runs. You know they're not only running five k's but they don't race the marathon. They don't focus on the marathon race. But I digress from that. Fifty years. Fifty. Fifty years. I started running at nine, (laughs) and I've only just turned the marathon now. It's taken me fifty years to get to it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm going to run. You know, I've ran a couple marathons. They've been horrendous uh, bouts, but I'll be focusing on the marathon. You know, if all goes well and I stay healthy at forty-five years old. So that's five years from now, and that will give me thirty years into running, and I'm going to focus on the marathon. But um, back to so yeah, I'd say. Kipchoge, I think he looks the most fluid. He has the prettiest form. But to what you were saying, just because it looks good with running doesn't mean it's the best for that person. So, you know, uh, this kind of wraps up everything we've said. You might see people, you might see the pros, you might see someone, you know, a friend, someone at the 5K, and they look good. Trying to mimic them isn't the best thing you could do. Or, you know, trying to drastically change your form and make it look pretty and fluid that might not be the best thing you can do obviously you can do that try to make it better and more efficient and if that does mean looking good that's fine but the looking good part that's just that's aesthetic that that's that's superficial um i'd say usually it's better because when someone has bad form, it does not look great. Um, you know, if they have bad form, that's usually hurting them. Usually doesn't look great. But there are really, you know, there are people that look really good that keep injuring themselves. And that, that means that they've got something happening, um, you know. So biomechanical issues, yeah. Exactly. Biomechanical, all these random things that need to get addressed. And the change might not actually change their form and how it looks. But just because they run good doesn't mean that, you know, they're, they're running as fast as they could be or staying as injury prone. So uh, it, it somehow turned into a trick question, which it didn't mean to be. But <laughs> Um, would love to hear what you have to say. Any parting words, Mike, to that? No, I uh, pretty much okay with that. That uh, yeah, form again. If 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 it works and you're happy with it and you're not injured, you don't need to change it. But uh, if you're getting injured a lot or you're not as quick as you think you could be or you think you've got some improvements, yeah, look at the form and efficiencies to go forward. You do get some shocking looking running actions that are very fast. So uh, you know, it, it it's not all about looking good. Uh, which a lot of people think it is. It's about running efficiently. as it, And if you have certain biomechanical issues as well, one leg shorter than the other or certain little problems, you might have to alter your running action to take account of the different biomechanical issues you have. So you've got to become most efficient at the best form that suits your body type. Let's go. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Aaron So, a.k.a. D-Lake. Tips and tactics, you could train like a pro. This cast to help you run faster than you could go. All the PRs you could beat, of course, records that comes in your upcoming season. Right. Don't you agree? Endurance sports, a metaphor for life. That's that metaphor, baby. Eating clean so you can rest and sleep all night. Don't master a lot, don't master a little, just stay in the middle. Don't master all, don't master none. Just be, just be a master of some. This episode is brought to you by Energy Coaching, which is Mike Tree's coaching service. Mike coaches beginners to pros and all levels in between. No one is too fast and no one is too slow. All the coaches have a desire to learn and improve with their athletes. Energy Coaching focuses on the 1500 meters to marathon running and triathlon training. Energy Coaching is usually overbooked, so Instagram and this podcast venture, Trees and D Lake, gives Mike and the rest of his energy coaching team a way to reach out to more people and help them. 
Contact Mike and his team at nrg-coaching.com for more info. That's the letters nrg-coaching.com, no spaces, for more information. Time. Time is a resource that no one can make more of, not yet at least. So we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen, watch, and generally consume all of this stuff. Accessibility is pretty cool nowadays, so we have a transcript for all of the episodes. Make sure to go to the show notes section on this episode on whatever podcast player you're listening to, or you can go to the description of this video on YouTube, or just go to dlakecreates.com forward slash transcripts. All of this was produced in Sydney, Australia, so I acknowledge the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land. I pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. A lot of people ask how they can support us, and I think the easiest way is to just share this out to people you know that would like this. So whether it's a podcast link from Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, whatever you're listening on, or you're watching on YouTube, send them the link, or even you know the Instagram post, my newsletter, blog post, etc. We try to make it super accessible. The second easiest way is to rate, like, or subscribe to this podcast and or video on YouTube, or even subscribe to my newsletter. If you have any feedback, feel free to hit me up, talk at dlakecreates.com. That's the letters T-A-L-K at dlakecreates.com, spelled all the normal way. Train smart, race, and live easy. Peace.